I would just sit in this cafe back in Iowa City and get an iced latte and eat it with the can and drink it with the canned fish, which is sort of a strange combo. Um, yeah. And let me tell you, uh, if you put on a mask after you drink an iced latte <laughs> and eat canned smoked fish, you're going to regret your culinary choice. You're going to regret it. Uh, yeah, you kept doing it. <laughs> fish-based diet seems like it would you know, prompt some reflection even without the mask. I know. It just, it's like I have a specific mask that I've meant to throw out, but I accidentally put it on again recently, and I could smell the smoke <laughs> trout fumes on it. Were you it. immediately transported back to your emotional state at the last time you were like wearing Proustian. it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's actually the, like they call Kanazgarh Proustian, or it's just because yeah. he, uh, the smell of smoked fish. It's literally it's just proof, but instead of instead of metal lens, it's smoked. <laughs> instead fish. of a nice thing that you would enjoy. <laughs> yeah, all the other shit's the same, you know. <laughs> Damn, we should probably read Proust. I've read the first. You oh, that's a lie. I've read I've read part of the Swan's Way. Was it good? What happens? No spoilers. Well, that's just the Madeline moment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of his like ants in the small town, and I remember there's a. There's a nice um, expatiation on asparagus and how it makes your piss smell. Really? Dude's yeah. Not I didn't know yeah. they were aware of that back in Proust's time. I thought science well, hadn't advanced that far. <laughs> no, no, it was an advanced society. They knew about pee. <laughs> what? Yeah. They, you're telling me they knew about pee? <laughs> well, 100 Proust, years ago? Proust actually uh, was a fan I heard of like golden showers. Is that right? <laughs> Did you find that in the st in the steel dossier? Uh, you need to read between the lines. Wait, did anyone get my, like, 2017 <laughs> Yeah, I know. I was very good. Thank you. I want to start with a new segment I thought of called The News from Norway. And I read a, it's where I read a piece of news from Norway that I saw on the Twitter trending topics in our Twitter account. Okay. So this is a piece of news. The title of it is Trump nominated yeah. for Nobel Peace Prize by Norwegian official citing Israel UAE peace deal. And the nomination was submitted by Christian Tibring Gidi, a member of the Norwegian parliament. What do you guys think about that? I mean I think it would be funny as hell, not for him to actually get it, but for like China to completely fuck up, you know, salmon exports or whatever again, the way they did for like four years. That was years a big deal. That was a huge, yeah. that's, it's the entire economy as far as I yeah. know. Yeah, um, yeah, no, it's all salmon. Yeah. It's a salmon based economy. Yeah. China is a salmon based economy? No, 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 no Norway. They, actually, they use oh. it instead of euros. Honestly, this Norway should send us personally some some salmon. <laughs> I, I, it's kind of a humble demand. <laughs> I, that's all I demand. I mean, I, I'll let them give Trump the peace prize if they give me some salmon, so I could just have a nice bagel. That's your supervillain demands. Just Send me uh, twenty-five. <laughs> I, what, I don't know what unit they would use to measure salmon. Kilos. Kilos. I think I was. I 2. was thinking two times kilos. as much. Kronor, Kronor yeah. salmon. Yeah, tw twenty-five Kronor worth of salmon. <laughs> By the way, our guest is uh, is Brendan O'Kane, a renowned sinologist. We're quickly hitting bottom uh, <laughs> in this podcast in terms of our acquaintances who have 
Red Canal scored. So uh, for reference, this is the second episode, and uh, Brendan is our guest, and he has not read a word of Canal scored. So not only that, I'm ever since we started this podcast, I've become <laughs> ever more like dead set in my refusal to read Canal scored. Yeah, I have yeah. to admit, I'm actually somewhat bewildered as to why we even invited you here. I, I got nothing. Okay, man. Drew. Well, if you know famous people with fifteen thousand followers on Twitter, maybe you can invite them. Let's just say I'm doing my best and I got, I landed the highest profile guest I could. And it happens to be my friend, Brandon, who has never read Canal Score. No, I'm, I'm still, that's not to say that I'm- of ancient Chinese literature. That's not to say that I'm unhappy you're here. In fact, like I, I relish the irony of platforming anti Canal's guardians. Oh, Drew, you don't have to point that out. That's the whole bit. You don't have to say it. Okay, sorry. <laughs> just more editing work. Not even anti so much as indifferent. Right, guess. indifferent. Okay. Yeah. So here's something I was wondering because I, I did read the um the, the James Wood article. Mm-hmm. Uh and so now I know more about Knosswood than than I wanted that's to pro- that's all you need to read, I'll tell you. Um but he talks a little bit about like cliched language or yeah. you know, uses of cliche. I was kind of wondering, is that Knosswood or is that the translator? That's oh. a good question. I have a feeling it's not the translator. I have a feeling it's him. I think it is Kanazgard, although I guess there might be cliches which are Maybe. somewhat un- less translatable than others mm-hmm. um, in a literal sense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah or, actually, you know, substituting yeah. equivalent cliches like falling in love was getting hit by lightning in right. English versus like it was like. I'm it, sure they have cliches bad. in Norwegian, they just involve mackerel. Yeah, the translation is an interesting question. It was like I... getting hit by a mackerel. <laughs> That's what it is in Norwegian. Falling in love is like getting slapped in the face with a mackerel. I don't know much about the translation of the books. It, somehow it, there's not a lot of discussion of it. I know with other writers who are not writing in English, you hear more about their translators. But Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was sort of looking just kind of out of idle curiosity and I think the last of the five books was like tag team translated by the original okay. and someone else, which suggests to me that the publisher was like in a major hurry to push out this massive bestseller of right. you know, volume five of this interminable Norwegian guy's struggle. But that's it. Like I, I you know, I'd, I'd be interested, I guess, in, in, uh, in knowing more about that just because I've worked as a, a literary translator and, you know, yeah, Brendan with cliche is always fun. For reference, is one of the most famous translators in the world of Sinology, which is why he's the perfect guest for this podcast about a Norwegian oh. memoir. No, that is I, interesting. I, I would have said both of those things, Lauren. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. I mean, I, I also am interested in why at least the American market is at certain moments, you know, flooded with writers from uh, certain countries. I don't know if Kanazgaard has led to a resurgence or uh, of, you know, Scandinavian writers, but. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's possible. Like I, I always tried to avoid the publishing side of things, but um, yeah, well, yeah. but yeah, I mean, you know, interest in, in one author, like whenever we were pitching stuff to publishers, you know, it was always a matter of like comparing this author to the author they had heard of even if there was nothing at all in common. And so I'm wondering if the pitch for Knausgaard is like, you know, it's, it's like the girl with the dragon tattoo, but, you know, <laughs> contemplative. And, yeah. you know, 
deeply religiously <laughs> into learning. Just slow it down. Perfect. It's like the girl with the dragon tattoo. Performed but there were John no Spade. cool characters. <laughs> there <laughs> were no in... murders. There was no action. But for you guys, like, what was the pitch that got both of you into Canal Squad? Um, I read his, I was writing a travel log story, that one I did about cycling through Sichuan yeah, during yeah. the pandemic and I knew that Canal Scored had written a travel log of road tripping through America for NYT magazine mm. and I um so I read that and I really liked it and mm. I was like well there's a pandemic now's I guess the time to read his fucking memoir yeah okay. I, I mean for me I was sort of an acolyte of a critic wood the wood famous I don't know wood. if you've heard of him yeah, yeah so I, when he no so when he was personality, James Wood. So so when he, you know, praised Kanazgar's work, I felt obligated to read it. But then it sort of became a sensation, and I became more skeptical of it mm. because I'm skeptical of literary sensations. Yeah. Do you think there's ever been a literary sensation that's not overhyped? That's actually uh, good. Besides Kanazgar, of course. I was gonna add that actually, yeah, Kanazgar seems like the rare exception hmm. to the rule and but i i don't know i mean it does there do, i guess the question is like there does seem to be more going on than simply a successful publishing campaign something that kanazgard has tapped into which perhaps we began discussing in the last episode um what about the theory that Kanausgard has only succeeded because he's hot and his face is on the cover? <laughs> well, I mean, I think those are interesting interpretations as well. Uh, I mean, that is yeah. kind of the Occam's razor explanation. Right. Yeah, although, I mean, like, Drew, have you and Lauren talked about the the triangle for Lauren? Like, no, Lauren? we're not talking about okay. this on the pod. <laughs> What's the triangle? <laughs> so back in Beijing, uh, Lauren's other uncle, James, and I were like trying to figure out what is the triangle because right. Lauren had these absolutely inexplicable attractions. And we had two vertices of the triangle. I don't think we ever figured out the third, but one vertex. No, it was the vertices were Mark Marin. Yeah. Bossy Lai, famously the corrupt, charismatic oh. Chinese official who was purged in a sensational trial. Yeah, big demagogue energy. Um, yeah, big demagogue energy. And the um, rapper ASAP Rocky. Anyway, let's just say Canal Scored is kind of the same genre as Mark Marin for me. I could see that. I think he went on Mark Marin's podcast. Wait, did he? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> what? Not okay, yet. you just triggered some fan art. You just triggered some <laughs> Fujoshi style fan art. Oh god, cheating Aaron's on. Imagine if he did. We we should write that episode. Yeah, uh, no, Lauren. I would love to be write drawing Yali for the rest. I'm of drawing. Days. Yeah, sorry, I'm already. I can't keep podcasting. I'm busy drawing extremely explicit fan art of Mark Marin and Canal Sports. Okay. But yeah. in that relationship, which one is Senpai? Uh, senpai is Mark Marin. Honestly, I feel like Mark Marin, he would, he would dig Canal Scott. He'd be like, so like, what got you going on this project? You know, you're, <laughs> sitting, you're, you're sitting at your desk, you put on this music. You, I know you love like garbage. Like you're, you're a 90s guy like me. Like, oh yeah, they would bond over that. Yeah. Who, who are you guys? Yeah, who are you guys? <laughs> so who are you guys? You, you Nietzsche? Who are you? Who are you? Yeah. <laughs> Post... Jesus. <laughs> but no, no, the best part is Kanausgord would unironically find Marin cool. He'd be like, yeah, yeah there's this guy with long hair who plays guitar <laughs> and he just is really passionate. And I feel like he's really cool. I wish I could be this kind of <laughs> alpha guy. He'd be like, everyone in America must, must think he's the coolest guy. 
Yeah, Let's become a Mark wrestlers from the 1980s. His oh. girlfriend died. It was really yeah, sad. I saw that. Oh yeah. 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 It's weird now when someone dies, but it's not a COVID-related death. Yeah. Yeah, David Graeber. Yeah. Oh yeah. Did he have cancer? Yeah. No, it was like the cl- the closest I saw to an explanation was just like sudden, inexplicable internal bleeding. Oh my god. Yeah. It was, so it was just total freak thing. I, that's what it sounded like. I I'm not sure, but yeah, bodies are awful, man. Dude, I'm gonna say it now. Fuck corporeality. Yeah, I can't wait to I, be liberated I, from this fleshly prison. Yeah. I can't agree with that statement, but <laughs> all about, you're the, you're the one with the the smoke trout smelling mask. I would have thought that that would you know make you long to become an immortal being of pure energy as soon as possible. I don't know. I just no. I just revel in flesh fleshliness. Carnality. Carnality is a good word. Yeah. I Wait, joyfully I'm... inhabit my flesh. You joyfully inhabit it? Most of the time. Okay. Nice. That's well, good for you. Lauren, did I ever, uh, since we're talking about things that are not Carl, uh, did I ever recommend to you the book The Carnal Prayer Mat? The Carnal Prayer Mat? Yeah, Real Putuan. Uh, really oh, good okay. yeah. translation <laughs> by, by Patrick Hannon. But yeah, it's this like just exuberantly obscene mid-17th century novel, probably by oh, yeah. Um about you know a, a young initiate who like wants to become a monk but he gets turned down and then he decides that he's going to like approach enlightenment by experiencing all that the fleshly world has to offer oh, yeah. and uh so he like does missionary and <laughs> oh no 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 i mean he does, this is... he does so... cool things like uh holding hands and... uh at one point he gets a dog's penis grafted to his own to enlarge it oh <laughs> Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. I never history, knew you could do that. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> ancient Chinese secret. Um, no, history yeah. people were totally fucking. And, um, huh. you know, so this is hardly written, I think, as a parody of, of Jinping Mei, The Plum and the Golden Vase, oh. which is like definitely the novel of our time. And yeah, uh, yeah the sex in Jinping Mei is really unappealing uh, as it goes on. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the 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 anti-hero dies in a very memorable fashion. Oh yeah, he um he let's talk about that. Let's talk about essence yeah. as the ancients understood it. And then okay. relate that back to Knausgard and Jizzing. Yeah, does does Knausgard jizz? He does. In the first book he prematurely ejaculates. Is that so? Wow. That. R.I.P. Yeah, let's let's go find that. Let's go find that passage. That's a good passage. He also jizzes the Kindle in... Fire, sponsor of the pod, has a search function. He's kind oh. of addicted to searching inside inside one of You mean he's done it at least one time? Well, like, no, I mean like or at least Dowser. four times. <laughs> He likes to reproduce. Like he, has he does like to odd... reproduce, weirdly. I mean, nope. maybe it's narcissism. I don't know. Or you That's know, probably be, it. I think that's being, safe to conclude. Being fruitful and multiplying, at least. Yeah. Why is no results coming up when I'm searching the text for penis? The word penis. <laughs> I don't think he I, uses... I know there. I know he mentions it. I feel like he doesn't... He's not very biological. Um... No, but there's that part in book one where he prematurely ejaculates. Does he say manhood, maybe? No. What is the word he uses? Maybe he says I know my, he talks my sex. You know, he maybe he that. says my struggle. Maybe that's what he calls his penis. <laughs> <laughs> I'm struggling. Oh. I'm gonna struggle, baby. That's guys, we figured it out. That's the hidden meaning of my struggle. <laughs> 
Honestly, that although actually it doesn't seem cheap. Wait, wait, I just saw a wreck. Oh shit, he got an erection? Oh shit. Oh no, wait, this is him talking about his dad's tie that he's wearing. Do you want to hear about this? Does the tie get Tell us about the tie erection. Okay, this is... (laughs) This is... Oh no, this is just a random portly man who they met. A portly man who might have been in his mid-60s stepped out, impeccably dressed in a dark suit and white shirt, and looked at us. Canal scored, he queried. We nodded and rose to our feet. He said his name and shook our hands in turn. Interesting, he redacted this guy's name. Come with me, he said. We followed him to a relatively large office with windows looking onto the street. He ushered us to two chairs in front of a desk. The chairs were of dark wood with black leather upholstered seats. The desk he sat behind was deep and it was too dark. This is very interesting to me as someone who just assembled a desk. A letter tray, the kind with several tiers, was on his left, beside it a telephone, otherwise the desk was empty. Well, not quite, for on our side, right on the edge, was a box of Kleenex. Practical, of course, but how cynical it seemed. Seeing it, you visualized all the bereaved relatives who had come here and wept in the course of the day, and you realized that your grief was not unique, not even exceptional, and ultimately not particularly precious. The box of Kleenex was a sign that here weeping and death had undergone inflation. Now I have a question about the translation. Do you think it was really Kleenex or do you think it was like the Norwegian equivalent and the translator uh, just chose to translate it as Kleenex? Uh, Is it capitalized or is it genericized? It's capitalized. I don't know. I mean, major global brand. I mean, how would it be a generic word? Yeah. But then, yeah, but like Brendan, if you're translating a Chinese book where a guy a morose man goes to his father's funeral and he meets the undertaker and he has a box of tissues on his desk, but it's a Chinese domestic brand. Would you translate it as Kleenex? No. Okay. No, probably not. I'm still trying to find the, I'm trying to find the premature ejaculation. I'm telling you it happens in book one, but we're already busy. We're talking about the tie. We're talking about the tie right now, Drew. Okay. He looked at us. How can I help you? He said, the suntan dewlap beneath his chin hung over his white shirt collar. His hair was gray and neatly combed. A dark shadow hovered above his cheeks and chin. The black tie did not hang. It lay along the curve of his bloated stomach. He was fat, but also erect. There was nothing flabby about him. Punctilious was probably the word, and thus also confident and safe. Do you think they have the word punctilious in Norwegian? Is that how you say it? Yeah. Yeah. But I don't, it's probably not the same. I think punctilious sounds... I mean, it's Latin, Latin it's, yeah. Yeah. I wonder what the Norwegian equivalent of punctilious is. For what it's worth, it's Google Translate me. says Norwegian for punctilious is punktlig. Oh, wow. There you go. I guess I probably should have thought of a uh, structure or outline for this episode. <laughs> but uh, the only... <laughs> that's, I mean, you're the one who's got to edit it. So. Yeah. The only idea I have is to choose pages of Canal Scored at random and make you listen to them. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, it, it is a method of divination, right? Like flipping right. books, picking things at random and attempting mm. to get meaning. Yeah, it's it. like you're one of those baby Nepalese and we're laying the pages in front of you and right, you have right. to grab them. Well, that implies that, that Knausgaard, or at least his prose, is the former Dalai Lama. Uh, that's mm. exactly what I'm saying. I mean, in a way, he's the Dalai Lama of... Um, Morose Norwegians. Morose <laughs> Norwegians. Why can't I find this? What word does he use? I can't. I... Man, you're really not selling. Wait, I found it. Place. I found it. I found it. <laughs> oh shit! 
And the moment, the, oh Jesus, okay. The moment I felt her moistness against my fingertips, something in me seemed to crack. It was like a pain shooting through my abdomen, followed by a kind of spasm in my loins. The next second, everything was alien to me. Well, that, 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 everything was alien to me. That's not how you describe a premature ejaculation. <laughs> well, that's how that he felt, Drew. And maybe you should respect his experience. That's, that's going to be my new code for premature ejaculation. Everything just <laughs> yeah. feels alien to me right now. Sorry, everything felt really alien there. I, isn't that uh, called the stranger, typically, when you sit on your hands? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was what Camus was writing about. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, it's, there always did seem something sort of masturbatory about it. Yeah, Actually, so, cannot. Can Osgar was sitting on his hand throughout the writing of my struggle. Oh, maybe that's why the prose is so flat. <laughs> that's why it's so long. He was trying to the best jerk off Just section. Trying to ever. prolong. Nice. So, Lauren, why are we talking about busting again? I no, you brought it up because you were talking about the Jean Ping Mei. Uh, oh, you were talking about busting in ancient we were, Chinese literature. Uh, we, we were talking about carnality, I think. Right. And then, and well, they're you, the same thing. And then you were implying that 17th century people weren't doing it. and Yes, I was. <laughs> yeah, no, no, man, were they doing it and writing about we're it. We're doing it. Excruciating detail. Brendan, do you want to explain the Jinping Mei and what it is? Yeah, so... And um, also relate it to Knausgaard. I, I can <laughs> definitely relate it to Knausgaard. Um, in that, the English translation of Jinping Mei is also in five volumes. No, the Knausgaard is in yeah. six volumes. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> nice try, though. We'll just go with it. Yeah, so, you know, anonymous novel written in the late Ming Dynasty first appears around the 1590s, and uh, it has this reputation in, you know, modern China as, as a work of pornography. And it's still banned. You still can't get a copy of it. Um, sometimes... To this day, see, you cannot get a copy of it in China? There have been editions released, but... They're really hard to find. It doesn't stay in print. Uh, you can get digital texts of it. And, you know, if you go to like a pirated bookstore, you might get something that's kind of vulgarized. But, um, but yeah, it's been really consistently banned. It's understood as a work of pornography, mostly by people who haven't actually read it. And before I ever read it, I was like, oh yeah, 17th century pornography. What, it's going to be a guy and a girl like in the same room without a chaperone? Right. No the sex is incredibly explicit. Um, nice. And as the book goes on, you know, you have these awful characters who are, you know, just breaking every single social taboo there is. And the book plays this really nasty trick in that the first 10 chapters are retelling this story that's familiar from an earlier tale complex, the Outlaws of the Marsh or the Shui Hu Right, which everyone um, knows. Everyone knows that. Um, yeah. But, you know, everybody who reads Jinping Mei does know this story. And so you have these familiar characters doing familiar things. It's, you know, discussed in a little more detail. And it's described in this almost seductive way. Like, you know, you're not supposed to root for the awful merchant anti-hero Xi Minqing. You know, you're not supposed to hope that he gets together with Pan Jinlian, the, the already married femme fatale. Yeah. Um, but you want them to. And... Their first meetings and couplings are described in this very kind of romantic, uh, kind of appealing imagery of, you know, like birds and butterflies and whatever. 
And in those first 10 chapters, while you're sort of, you know, rooting for them against your better nature, almost without noticing it, you're also rooting for them to commit murder, to pay off the, the coroner, to, you know, pervert justice, to bribe, to cousin. Um, and, you know, after those first 10 chapters, it starts getting darker and darker and darker. Um, the sex becomes less and less appealing. The metaphors change from birds and butterflies to like snakes, uh, to, you know, martial metaphors. Um, mm. It becomes more violent and less satisfying for everybody involved, but the doors are locked from the outside and you've got 90 more chapters to get through. And, um, you know, and meanwhile, in addition to that perversion, there's also perversions of justice, perversions of social order. The anti-hero is a merchant, which is like the lowest of the classes. Um, yeah, as it should be. As it should be. Uh, but, you know, he amasses power and wealth and influence and, you know, proximity even to imperial power that no one of his station should ever, ever, ever have. Uh, the story is set at the end of the Northern Song Dynasty. And so also everybody who's reading knows what's coming. The dynasty is going to collapse. The barbarians are going to invade. Shit's going to get real. Um, but it's also very transparently about the late Ming Dynasty moment at which it's written. Right. Uh, the institutions described are late Ming institutions, the material culture, like the amount of just stuff in this book, products, clothes. Um, Ximen Qing, the anti-hero, has a silver cock ring. Uh, we nice. In the first 10 chapters. Um, all of it is very much of the moment in which it's written and, and first read. And what it's about ultimately is a society that has money poisoning. Mm. Uh, a society that, you know, that is newly mobile, uh, where goods are traveling, where everything can have a monetary value assigned to it, and kind of what that does to, you know, through the person of Xi Jinping and his awful household, what it does to the empire as a whole. And um, it's a, a really brilliant, genuinely amazing piece of writing. It's, I, I'd say it's the first Chinese novel to really deserve the name. Um, in that it's not originating from an oral tradition. Um, sure. Without it, you don't get later things like Hong Mong, the, the story of the stone, which everybody loves, right. um, is quite explicitly modeled on features of this. Um, and uh, the anti-hero, Xi Menqing, dies ironically by busting to death. Exactly. Um, which brings us back to uh, to where we got into <laughs> the topic. Yes, uh, Lauren, yes. Lauren's fascination with <laughs> Honestly, that's Pull the best from way half to go court. At. That's, the that's what we call out. making the basket from half court or whatever the basketball is. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it is not the best way to go out as described here. Um, oh. The, and the, to be clear, busting to death is actually a fairly common fate in uh, Chinese literature. I, I know of at least one other instance. There's one in Hong Lomong, I believe. In chapter 12, World Jare. Yeah. Of course. Yeah, he's, the, he's the sex pest sicko who runs the school for boys, and then he becomes too horny for uh, his cousin. For his cousin. Yeah. And then he busts to death. Yeah, and, and Shit. but yeah. what's cool about that? Uh, there's a bunch of really cool things, but he the reason he busts to death, like yes, he is just generally too horny, but he's lying in bed like lovelorn, you know, 
horny yeah. for and like lovesick for his cousin and nothing will cure him and then uh you know this slightly disreputable Taoist comes by the house and offers his family uh a mirror called the the feng yue baojian the, the precious mirror for the romantic and yeah. he says this will cure him but make sure that he only looks into the right side of the mirror and so they bring the mirror to Jia Rei and he looks into it uh, or rather, he looks into the, the, the right side of the mirror, the back of the mirror, and he sees this grinning skull, his own reflection. And, you know, he curses and says, ah, oh, that, that stinking Taoist. And he looks around at the, the front of the mirror, and he sees himself transported into a scene with his cousin where they perform the carnal act and, you know, lie in each other's arms and, you know, bust. Um, <laughs> and And he gets sucked into fantasy, a fantasy that is realer than reality. And it's his obsession with that. It's his failure to distinguish between, you know, reality and sensuous fantasy that causes him to bust himself to death. Um, and it takes a few days, as I remember. It takes a few days. He's busy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what's cool is Hong Meng or Shi Ji, this novel, which is in English, The Story of the Stone, um, has a bunch of different titles. And one of yes. them is A Precious Mirror for the Romantic. Wait, really? Yeah. And so, you know, the, that book has, I think, a lot to say about kind of fictionality. And, right. uh, and you know, for the 18th century, it's a pretty advanced little metafictional uh, swipe at, at the reader and I, I think today like the people who love this book are actually not reading it right um, oh because they see it as just a straightforward like it, it's a romance romantic people story love, yeah yeah people love you know yeah. the poetry club meetings and all the nice clothes yeah. and the garden and so on and yeah because you, know, you like, could just make it like a like a very long story about a love triangle between cousins yeah although i mean there's there's way 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 more to it than that yeah it, i mean there are you know millions of bad romances yeah. uh but uh, but what people love about it is the, uh, among other things, just the appealing sensuousness of it. it it's an yeah. incredibly richly written book. And I think there's an argument to be made that in the figure of Jia Rei busting himself to death because he has gotten like trapped in his own unreal fantasies, um, you've got almost a warning to the reader. To not like this book too much? Yeah, or, you know, to distinguish between, you know, the, the sensually appealing and the reality, the backside of the mirror, which is you're going to die. Oh, wait. So this is coming back into Canal Scored. Yeah, I, I think there are some connections here. Okay, Drew, now, now, okay, Brendan has passed the ball to us. Now we have to shoot it into, uh, into the basket from half court. So let's, let's go oh, on this. Okay. I mean, I think in Canal Scored, there... There is to use that, come back to the word carnality, which I suppose got us started on this tangent. Okay. Um, I just think, no, I think Kanazgar's work manages to be deeply carnal or flesh, fleshy, fleshly without descending into a kind of, uh, you know, masturbatory or, so it doesn't, it, it, he doesn't bust himself to death is I think what I'm trying to say. Well, I mean, it, it does seem like from what I, have read about these books that I will never read um, that, you know, there is this kind of accumulation of, of detail, right? I mean, he's yeah. 
uh, he's constructing something which appears to be documentary. Right. Or Lauren, were you saying that death is like the obverse of the mirror? Yeah, Brennan was saying yeah. that. Right. So or is that the connection that you were trying to get me well, to? Well, first of all, I think there's a very straightforward structural similarity, which is in book one, the first half is this account of his uh, kind of delightful account of his childhood in Norway, where you have about 180 pages devoted to getting uh, the beer to the New Year's Eve party. Yeah. I was going to say there is a dense materialism yeah. to the books. So there more is about a dense it. materialism. And then the second part is literally, so it's kind of delightful. The first part, like I really enjoy it. It's light. It's about like being young and in love and, you know, swimming in the fjord and um, <laughs> eating mackerel. And, but then the right. second part is about his father dying and cleaning out his father's literally shit infested house where he drank himself to death. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's the, the turn um but i think the the metafictional part brendan is talking about is dramatized in this book because you do have these straightforward scenes of delight and um he does have some quite beautiful central descriptions of norway in the 80s and like the natural beauty of kristansand but the underlying part is always the kind of gothically awful death of his father and the impending death of us all. Right, some, some kind of- You say it's self-contained. I mean, are there other passages where it seems writerly in, in the Yeah, I mean, maybe there, I mean, you could also argue that they're sort of self-contained essays too, although that probably is too strong a word to use. And, mm-hmm. you know, I do think they're kind of all interlaced. But um, yeah, I think actually the, the irony is that if you were simply to read a page of a lot of Kanazgard and you kind of had, didn't have an idea of the scope of the book, uh, you might think you were reading a very kind of plodding domestic novel. If you didn't know better. Mm. Um, yeah, if you're one of those idiots, doesn't you know, know that, better. That, I mean, of course, Kanazgard, I don't think, I don't think he's simply like, you know, parodying this. And we talked about his resistance to sort of clever parody or things like that last time. But I think that, but he is, he is sort of exploding what a domestic novel might do in a more contained way so that, you know, it's actually going to be plotting because um, there's not necessarily a conventional story um, being told with, through or within those domestic details. It's like those, those details uh, are the, story and are kind of the engine of the yeah, narrative. The details are the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I think, I think is what, yeah. which is, um, I mean, which I also think is an interesting sign of the books, what I guess we, I think maybe James Wood calls or we could call too, the materialism, which um, is something that is interesting to speculate on. I think we should actually devote an episode to the- Yeah, wait, uh, Brendan, <laughs> tell us more about cool objects they had in the 17th century. Yeah. So, okay, well, well, like Jinping Mei, there are all of these descriptions. If you read the English translation of this, um, it is, even for like reader, native readers of Chinese, the English translation is helpful because it is approximately 90% footnote. Okay. And okay. one of the things that comes out in these footnotes, which really kind of represent the life's work of David Roy, the translator, is there are 
all of these little details, which are completely opaque to us, that would have meant something to people at the time, uh, especially when it comes to clothing, in the materials used in the clothes, the cut of the clothes. Um, people are, are, are the, you know, the, the characters are like violating sumptuary laws left and right. Oh yeah, wait, can you talk um, about sumptuary regulations? They might not, our listeners might not know about sumptuary regulations, but they kind you, of rock. Your listeners aren't stay. fucking stupid, Lauren. Everybody knows about sumptuary regulations. But, I'm pretty yeah. sure they don't know about the laws of who can be how fancy, which is essentially what they are. That's, that's what it is, right? It's, it's laws on, you know, who's entitled to wear what, uh, you know, color, material, garment, whatever. Um, and when you see, and, you know, these things were, of course, violated, uh, especially in, in the late uh, 16th and, and 17th centuries. But, you know, when you see these things being casually violated, um, you know, it's just one of many signs that like something seriously out of balance, things that shouldn't be happening are happening and nobody's being punished for it. Um, you know, this vulgarian merchant is, is dressing as if he were a judge. Um, it's like that. Um, <laughs> Or, you know, he's, he's dressing like someone who had an education and a moral grounding. And so, yeah, I mean, the, I, I don't know if, if uh, Karlova does the same thing, but, you know, there are arguments to be made for that kind of dense, uh, materialistic, if you like, uh, depiction of things, you know, as, as a way of, I don't know, reflecting social realities. I mean, even if you see, like, I remember watching... God, was it, I think, House of Cards or something. And just noticing that the production designers had paid attention to phones. Like all of the interns had, you know, two generation old phones, whereas the, the politicians had latest, you know, stuff like that, which is not identifiable outside a certain milieu or a certain moment in time, but is actually meaningful at the time that it's written and for the audience that it's written for. It's funny so, because... I'm actually skeptical of like the cult, what I might call the cult of detail in, mm. in fiction. And I think in a, in a lot of writers details, specifically visual detail, like something like, you know, he was sitting on the porch with a half empty seven up and like smoking a camel cigarette or something like that. These specific vivid details are often part or actually are themselves a kind of like literary trick that sort of, a uh, shorthand way of uh, persuading yeah, but us I think of a you can argue that, that those types of details aren't really actually, they're almost the opposite of details because they're really just yeah. metonyms. They're like right. they're just lazy shorthand. Yeah, I mean, or... Like camel cigarettes, yeah. those will never have a materiality if I hear them written about. Like you would have to go down right. to like how the tobacco looked for it to seem like a camel cigarette to me. Otherwise, it's just a stand-in for, I don't know, being cool or... Right, like, it's a kind of like mimetic stand-in but um yeah. i do wonder so i get i mean I'm, and i'm still not sure why this is but somehow Kinazgard doesn't have that that feeling um the choice of detail doesn't feel self-consciously literary in the way that it might in a more conventional or um short story or something where you know you encounter you can kind of also like just you know it's almost like Mad Libs with with vivid details. I mean, sometimes, um, or they're you know, or they're too transparent, um, or they're too precise uh, in their attempt to kind of be vivid or real. Um, yeah, but, I know exactly what you're talking about. I can't give any good examples, but I 
Um, yeah. Like William Gibson, someone who has actually used brands really, really well, uh, you know, like actual and fictitious brands as a way of kind of world building uh, in his earlier stuff and then his more recent stuff. In the early cyberpunk novels, he's talking about, you know, Yiho Yuan cigarettes, which as far as I know, don't exist, but, you know, they, it, it, it's something that is just a part of the world that he's uh, describing, or uh, there's a, a, a plot point in Neuromancer, uh, which revolves around a character's fondness for Ting Ting Jahe uh, ginger candy, which does exist, you know, and, and just these things can be tokens of, of a character, you know, somebody, I don't think this is Gibson, but, you know, imagine a, a noir novel in which you know, the, the detective arrives on the scene and there's a half-smoked Virginia Slim in the ashtray, you know, mm. and it's uh, associated with the fem, you know, the, the floozy who contacted him at the beginning or whatever. Um, you know, these things can be useful um, for, I, I guess, for functions other than kind of constructing, um, you know, verisimilitude. Yeah, but I think when I think the problem lies in when you're somewhere in between someone like Gibson who's building a different world and then someone like Kanausgord who is, you know, his only aim is to achieve verisimilitude. And then when you're in between and you're just doing some kind of realist short story like what Drew is talking about, mm -hmm. those uh, details become kind of lose any shape or... They somehow signify too much and not enough. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly, yeah. I've been rereading re The Magic Mountain by Thomas mm -hmm. Mann, and it's actually uh, making me think in moments of the Canals Guardian project. In the, really? How so? In this, well, in many ways, but I was just thinking of this one quotation in particular, which is from the forward of the book, and now it looks like, although I'm cheating, because I'm always skeptical when somebody writes an essay and quotes from like the first 20 pages of the book. <laughs> actually, actually, I found that James Wood does this quite a bit. So, oh. I, I think I'm on to you, uh, James. <laughs> Called you out for a second episode in a row, James Wood. Like if if, if Remember gonna, me, James Wood, I will end you. <laughs> if you're going to quote from a book, I think you, just, you have to make sure like you need to have a few deep dives to prove that you've gone yeah. beyond the initial moment. But anyway, um, Thomas Mann said, uh, writes about how he's going to tell his story. He's using the royal we, uh, somewhat ironically, I think. We shall tell it at length in precise and thorough detail. For when was a story short on diversion or long on boredom simply because of the time and space required for the telling? Unafraid of the odium of appearing too meticulous, we are much more inclined to the view that only thoroughness can be truly entertaining. Entertaining being a sort of interesting word to use there. Um, I guess I, I just, I'm saying this to uh, show that Kanazgard, um, you know, is committed to the odium of thoroughness. Mm. And it is weirdly entertaining. But yeah, uh, I think what you're talking about is how that, the, <laughs> that odium is the only way you can almost the only way you can reclaim the materialness if it as it were mm -hmm. of ordinary objects because if it's not if they're not just in there as a matter of course of this kind of tedious cataloging then they do take on too much meaning or they do there are burdened mm -hmm. i think they're burdened with whatever literary um, associations they had before but if they're really just being kind of systematically cataloged um i think they kind of yeah, he almost is able to 
reproduce their ordinariness. Like I think, I think cigarettes are a great example because mm-hmm. in these books, cigarettes, Canalscord is constantly smoking, but he's never like, it never means that he's cool or he's brooding or whatever the other associations are. It's just literally a thing that intervenes uh, every so often because he's addicted to them and he's like taking care of his kid and literally has to go and have a cigarette. And it's like, there's nothing romantic about it at all. I do wonder if there's um, sort of an analogy to be made between the alienation we, we moderns or we postmoderns or we post-postmoderns might feel from death um, that Kanazgo trying to correct and a similar alienation I know I perhaps feel from actually like things and objects and proper nouns. Um, I've talked to other writers about this too, and we feel kind of uh, an inability to uh, find some proper nouns. Like, and I, I do know if you read, perhaps this is too crude, but if you do read like older novels, I mean, even this Thomas Mann novel, which is not necessarily even that old, all things considered, um, you do find a kind of like heftiness of, uh, of, of not proper nouns, but just concrete nouns of, and things that I, I personally don't feel I've asked you, and this could be a, a social class thing. I mean, there are many, there are many uh, reasons, but I think actually like you could say like Kanazgard, I think they're actually like, the connection is um, intentional because, you know, death is the ultimate material reality. So it is, right, you know, right. it is, it is, you know, we are forced to confront our um, thinginess. I think Wood writes about this, like we are things um, who, which, which go to become dust or whatever. It, the, the ultimate reality thing just reminds me of the Philip Larkin line. Oh, I love that. Uh, in, in Albed, uh, yes. most, most things may never happen. This one will. Mm, yeah, yeah, things. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think, wait, shit, what was I going to say? I just forgot again. What was it? It was a material reality. Uh, oh, isn't specific- the obvious, yeah, Sorry. specificity, isn't the obvious, and it, maybe it's even too obvious for me to point this out, but whatever, um, isn't the obvious reason why things lack heftiness now because they're mass produced? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think that there's something to that. But I mean, you mean that like all just the, too easy to acquire objects like it, objects were so precious right. 200 years ago, right. like uh, candles, for example, you know, oh, my God, like people there's so many 19th century novels, there's like a complete almost fetishization of candles, because when you do not have electric or gas light, it's like, a, well, you got to conserve work those candles, and they take a lot of work to make. Yeah, I mean, I, Lauren, you were talking about assembling a desk and actually I recently um had an adventure where i went to ikea um yes and, wait let's each talk I, about our ikea I, well i was actually thinking about ikea vis-a-vis kanazgar just on a sort of, of course, simple yeah. uh, scandinavian angle however a week ago have you written about ikea i'm not sure at this point but it sounds like some like new if you were some like lame like new yorker you know talk of the town writer you'd be like kanazgar <laughs> goes to ikea I also find myself hating the Swedes whenever I <laughs> wait no 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 I swear to god they did Linda and the New Yorker did a profile of Linda and okay. they took her to Ikea I swear oh, to god of course. Yes. like some semiotics of Ikea yeah, yeah. But, um, uh, although I, what I was really going to say is I, I, of course I have the visual spatial and mechanical ability of like a two year old 
Same. Um, so I was dreading, absolutely. The, re the main reason I didn't even go and acquire this furniture is because I didn't want to be saddled with the task of assembling it. I knew I would have to do it. So I was in a state of dread, but then I actually began the project and, and started uh, and survived. But I, I'm just, I was just thinking that that was like one of the more real uh, material experiences I've had yeah. uh, in recent memory. Um, and it did feel somewhat odd. And of course, like I'm speaking to someone who doesn't work with his hands and things like that. So yeah. it's sort of, it's sort of comical, but it, it really was like one of the more material experiences or thingy experiences I've, I've had um, <laughs> was assembling Ikea furniture. And I was actually uh, sadly somewhat con content and proud with myself for having done it. Dude, same, same. For for the listener, Drew and I have both recently moved into unfurnished apartments, not in yeah. different places. And we have both been in the project of, of furnishing our rooms and assembling IKEA furniture. And I did assemble my desk, uh, IKEA desk, with the help of my housemate. It's been interesting to live with him because he's like a bike mechanic slash just oh. a general tools guy. Like yeah. he just owns a lot of tools. And so like, I was like, he just like hovers over me whenever I try to build anything because he wants so desperately to do oh, it God, himself. Oh God, I would, I would love stop it. you. Yeah. And, uh, but you know, he's very patient and very enlightened. Um, and it was like very satisfying. And then he let me use his power drill, Ooh. which was really cool. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I've just been having a lot of material experiences as well lately. And I think, frankly, <laughs> sadly enough, I think the closest a lot of, you know, young urban creative class types come to materiality is simply... Uh, I know, assembling yeah. Assembling furniture. Furniture. I mean, yeah. yeah, it is true that I think there is a there is also like a subset of like sort of bourgeois writers who like fetishize you know materialism and work. Yeah, and uh, artisanship. I feel like the and so much of hipsterdom of what people hipsterdom oh, yeah. was about was artisanship, like artisan coffee, artisan like reclaimed wood for what it, people just have a huge boner for for barn doors. Yeah, well, because wood. it's because it's unique, yeah. right? It's not. Yeah, exactly. It's not mass produced. And, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Another thing. Uh, and fermentation, fermentation is right. Right. Yeah, yeah. God, there's definitely something to be written on the semi-autumn kombucha. Yeah. yeah. I mean, a, another thing about hipsterdom, like, because I have my 17th century nerd monomania, um, like. You do. I, I, I do. Uh, and it's critical. I, I see a fair amount of kind of proto hipsterdom there too with um, interesting. Say more about that. So in, in fiction, right? Fiction is not a respectable genre. It doesn't really become a respectable genre arguably until the 20th century. Um, but people start taking it seriously. The hipsters of the day start taking it seriously. I'd say very end of the 16th start of the uh, start of the, to the mid 17th centuries. And it's this kind of hipstery thing too, I think, of taking pop culture and treating it with way too much seriousness, right? Or taking something that is not usually analyzed and subjecting it to, you know, the fruits of your student debt. Um, <laughs> or, you know, like taking what is- Got him, uh, got him. <laughs> hey man, I'm in the same boat, but, you know, or like taking, you know, taking what is at heart a bad hamburger, but elevating it shape right. style, right? Like there is this kind of, right. uh, I think it's an aspect of hipsterdom is, is treating unserious things with absolute seriousness. Yes. And 
Yeah, because the problem it's well, it's it's a postmodern thing, also, isn't it? Like, I mean, it's all we're it's, we're all just talking about the same thing of, you know, it goes back to that late capitalist thing of nothing is straightforward anymore. Everything has to be a, a take on something else, right? So there's this deli near my house in D.C. called Call Your Mother that's like extremely self-awarely Jewish, but like has you know, it's mm. like it's like a nouveau Jewish deli and like yeah, up until, yeah, 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 it's that kind of thing. And like all the sandwiches are like $15, but like right. every, the pastrami is so it's like, you know, the, yeah, it's like that kind of thing. And like, you know, it's like people would prefer the, and this goes back to the fixation on authenticity too in Canal Squared. Um, I mean, it's, it's all related. Like, I, but it's I like, it's, it's trying to is, reclaim Katz's yeah. deli and knowing you never will. Like those people are dying and like, um, I don't know. So is, is Fnosgaard obsessed with authenticity or are his readers yes, obsessed yes, with I, authenticity? No, I think he the, himself is obsessed with authenticity. I'm going to go out and say that. Yeah. I'm, he wants I, to I live guess, an authentic life. Yeah. I, I guess the interesting, too, interesting thing too, though, is that in Knosgaard, I don't feel, as we talked about last time, perhaps like a kind of precious, clever preoccupation with, you know, the semiotics of... Mm -hmm. Um, X or Y thing. Well, but I think um, he knows it's because the authentic life will not be achieved through authentic objects. So he's, he's so, like, he yeah. knows, so he knows he's accepted that and he's like, I'm just going to go to the fucking, you know, Costco or wherever and get. I, like, I don't detect in his work the kind of gamey, kind of self satisfied cleverness of like a postmodern uh, semiotician in the supermarket, but nor is there the um, lit, like, I, literary striving for authenticity that you might find in the kind of you know domestic realist short story it, it's something else um wait say more about that the domestic realist short story wasn't that the title of a, a randall Jarrell collection of essays sad hearts at the supermarket <laughs> it might be um, really yeah well lauren to to your point um the traditional or one of the binaries of like literature in america which is already kind of uh, corroded and um, obsolete was that like you had you know like postmodern writers of um, the kind of not even like even pre DFW ilk um, like Delillo or or Pynchon let's say on the one hand and then on the other these kind of authentic uh, somewhat grimly or or grittily uh, realist writers who who weren't necessarily domestic because they um, did you know write about people of actually like lower castes. Although, you know, on the on the upper class end, you might have like a John Updike domestic world, and then on the on the slightly lower, you might have Raymond Carver. Um, mm -hmm. But certainly, they were, you know, material. There there were many material. There was a heft of material details in in their work. Mm -hmm. But in many in in many cases, there it was kind of a a very actually like self consciously literary project, no less literary than the um, ostensibly high minded <coughs> or showy uh, postmodernists. In fact, mm -hmm. so you know they're actually so the, that binary was always more of a, a blended thing. But um, but in Kanazgard, I don't like he's kind of neither nor. Um, he's also not an American writer, so it's unfair to necessarily class him among these people. But somehow, you know, he feels free of of that kind of like literary striving. Um, there is striving, but it's not it's not to kind of uh, you know his his att his attempt to be authentic seems I guess just seems like humanly real. It's not merely it's not part of a literary project. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Well, I mean, you said of course he's not an American writer, but yeah, I mean, 
one of the things that always came through for me in translation is just how, you know, hegemonic English literature is. Right. It gets translated into everything. And so do right. you get the sense that he's writing against any of these writers? Uh, yeah, that's, a, that's actually a good question. I know, like, to be very literal about it, he, he does mention having read, like, Don DeLillo, for instance. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think he certainly was, um, you know, had read those, that of many American writers. And I think, yeah, I think it would be naive to, to think that he wasn't or isn't somehow responding to them and to that American tradition. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I think that's a, that's, a good, that's a good insight. I would, you know, I would have to kind of read him with an eye to that question. But, uh, you know, although he makes allusions and, and references and things like that, um, and it actually has sort of almost essays on other artists, although often they're not writers, he somehow seems to kind of be free of like a, cha a sort of chain of references that I, I might look for in other writers. But I mean, that, that, that doesn't mean much because you're right that like he is writing in a world subsumed by American letters, so. I just found a quote I wanna read about, um, it's early in book two. I think Drew and I touched on this actually earlier where he's kind of storming around Stockholm talking about uh, his longing for the 19th century and um, mm. having, quote, an angry 19th century man inside of me, <laughs> which yeah. is such an amazingly Kanausgård sentence because, like, I feel like it's an American... Such a Tobias Funke sentence. I, I know. It's, like, because it's so unironic. Like, it's just so... Again, he has that almost, like, kind of naive, like, very innocent, like, just straightforward longing in him. And, like, an American writer could never get away with that sentence. An angry 19th century man inside of me. It would just be so regressive. But Knausgård is just so fucking unmediated that it's, like, you believe him. He really does. Like, this is, we were touching on Dostoevsky last time, and Knausgård is kind of pushing I, I back against... Yeah, he's pushing back against people shitting on Dostoevsky because he's too nihilistic. Um, and it's in this passage that he argues... Um, that we are in an equally nihilistic time. So he says, the difference between 19th century nihilism and ours is the difference between emptiness and equality. In 1949, the German writer Ernst Jünger wrote that in the future, he would have something approaching a world state. Now, when liberal democracy reigns supreme in modern societies, it looks as though he was right. We are all Democrats. We are all liberal and all the differences between states, cultures, and people are being broken down everywhere. And this mm. movement, what else is at heart if not nihilistic? He quotes, the nihilistic world is in essence a world that is being increasingly reduced, which naturally of necessity coincides with the movement toward a zero point, Junger wrote. A case in point of such a reduction is God being perceived as quote unquote good, or the inclination to find a common denominator for all the complicated tendencies in the world, or the propensity for specialization, which is another form of reduction, or the determination to convert everything into figures, beauty as well as forests, as well as art, as well as bodies. For what is money if not an entity that commodifies the most dissimilar things? Or as Junger writes, little by little, all areas are brought under the single common denominator, even one with its residence as far from causality as the dream. In our century, even our dreams are alike. Even dreams are things we sell. Undifferentiated, which is just another way of saying indifferent. I feel well, like his cultural critique is not actually that pointed, but there's like such a... <laughs> Yeah. It's like, he's like, because he really, he's not really a cultural critic and no. he doesn't even try to be, but it's just, he's so furious about something. He just has such strong passions inside of him, this like longing for authenticity that it kind of like, it comes out as cultural critique sometimes. But I think it's like, it's almost beyond that. 
But I think the undifferentiated thing is what really gets him. And I, I wish I could find the part where he says, I wish we could go back to when things were more differentiated and like things were more precious right. because they took more time to acquire and we could go back. Yeah, yeah I mean, he has a, a romance for undiscovered places too. Um, yeah, for the undiscovered, like, God damn it, where is that part? Yeah, I mean, like the flip side of that is like, you know, okay, yeah, I, I, I get the yearning. Everything now sucks. Let's face it, this, <laughs> is, this is a wretched century. But, um, you know, like on Twitter the other day, there was, there was a brief moment of, of annoyance among sinologists because someone said something stupid about the, the Han Dynasty historian Sima Chen. Uh, and uh, Sima Chen, for those who don't know, uh, in addition to writing the kind of the first great work of Chinese history, he was castrated as okay. a, a punishment for basically backing the wrong horse in, in a court dispute. Oh, and, and he wrote uh, afterwards this famous letter to Renan describing, um, you know, kind of the, the difficulties of making moral choices and so on. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's famous, like school kids have, have read this letter for the past 2000 years. Um, and I've taught it a couple of times in class. And one of the first things I do whenever we're covering it is ask my students if they know when the first antibiotics were used. Mm -hmm. It's the 1940s. Yeah. Um, I would not go back to the 19th century for anything. I don't care how much <laughs> more differentiated it was. Like, I'm not going to die of a fucking paper cut. Um, oh yeah for sure you know and uh, and but i you guess would be more attuned to death if you knew you could i would be pretty fucking paper. attuned to death yeah if, if, and that if is what this whole book is about off. arguably yeah Although, you know who knows if how well canal scored would face up to septic shock or whatever yeah and i kind of it sort of relates to i guess a question that i i, I had been meaning to ask you guys like outside the world of the book you know i i believe that he's in search of authenticity. Um, has anyone ever called him on his bullshit? Because <laughs> like, you know, Lauren, you used the word unmediated. He's absolutely mediated. Everything in that book is there because he put it there. Yeah. Right, but I think and the aspiration is to make his prose as unmediated as possible. Like he does very little editing. But no, I think that's a really, that's a really, that's a good point. Um, and we shouldn't forget that, but I, I don't know, have people called? But I think his I genuine longing is to create something as I, close I, to unmediate as possible. I, yeah, I mean, I, I have no doubt. And it's, you know, like, I, I'm highly sympathetic to that. But yeah. at the same time, like, if he's writing about his memories of high school, that's mediated by decades. Yeah. As well as, you know, self, I mean, through conscious and unconscious forms of mediation. Um, last time around, you were talking about, you know, him being compelled to remove people's names from the book another form of mediation and so you know whatever he's constructing in this going back to poor old jarry and, and the precious mirror like it may be a, a reasonable facsimile of reality but it is artificial in oh, yeah. both senses of the term right but As i think that bothers him i think that's and i but and i think that limitation is what haunts mm -hmm. him i think he desperately wants to it to not be a facsimile. And that's why he devotes so much time to the incessant cataloging of, of details and materiality. But all he's doing is making a better fact or, you know, more complicated facsimile. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the problem is there's uh, an asymptote that you're just never going to reach. Mm -hmm. If the asymptote is reality as it is, um, I think, but I think this book is kind of can be, I think what James Wood is saying in his critique is this book is basically a valiant or almost heroic effort to, in almost, uh, what the fuck is that story? David and Goliath mm -hmm. style effort to do this hopeless, accomplish this hopeless task of reproducing life as it is. Yeah, I guess on the other axis, or the other end of that axis, um, Michael Chabon had, I think pronounced Chabon, uh, had a, a piece about Finnegan's Wake, like oh, maybe dear. 10 years ago, and, you know, describes it as sort of like, this is, you know, the most that that anything could be and like really? Joyce, you know, sort of went out and did it and now nobody has to do it again. Oh, um, yeah. You know, is, is Knosko doing the same thing for this kind of fake verisimilitude? Oh, interesting. I mean, I think all, I mean, all writing is fake verisimilitude. Sure. So, you know, I'm not sure how much that tells us about the Guardian product necessarily, but and I think Kanazgard would like would accept that as a given, you know, I mean, um, although I do think that's also part of why he's open to cliche and a kind right. of like, he like, ha, there's like. Because you're acknowledging uh, your limitations yeah, by there's a con like There's a concession to um, the kind of fact that you will always be outstripped by reality, whatever that is, if you are an artist trying to represent uh, the, that reality. Um, and being but, deliberately unwriterly, right? I mean, people yeah. think cliche. Clichés are powerful labor-saving devices. Right. Um, exactly. And I mean, the I Industrial think, yeah. Revolution gave us cliche. Oh, it's late capitalism. <laughs> there, was never, there was never a cliche before Alan Greenspan, Lauren. <laughs> Although, I mean, it's interesting, like, you know, I, I wouldn't think to talk about Kanajgard and, and Joyce together necessarily at all but um you could you could argue that like joyce is definitely trying to you know do something like terminal right this is an interesting prompt what other books are terminal i think canalsgord <laughs> could be terminal finnegan's i mean canalsgord like joyce seems m much more terminal than canalsgord to me because canalsgord yeah. also see i guess maybe it's, it's because of how sort of, I mean, this is silly word to use perhaps, but how like personal or kind of like yoked to Knazgard's own experience of psyche uh, his books are. Not that Joyce's aren't either, but um, you know, clearly Joy Joyce was like working in a more sort of self-consciously like mythical mode. Right. Um, and Knazgard seems very far away from that. Although I was thinking it would be funny if like in some post-apocalyptic uh, landscape of Kinosgard like was absorbed into like oral culture. <laughs> God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. If, yeah. If, if you just like, you know, convert him into hexameter or something. And, I mean, yeah. you, you, yeah. I mean, I guess you, you could read Kinosgard as like in a way, yeah. Like a terminal example of a kind of like self-reflexive or, um, you know, uh, self, directed or uh kind of postmodern writing or mm. i mean he's also i mean he's also treated as like an exemplar of like auto fiction which is a really silly term that i think we've chatted about a bit but um i i don't know i don't know where i'm going with that simply to say 
that he, he's he's touted as both like maybe as all uh, uh, he's touted more perhaps as like a, a, a beginning perhaps or a sort of but mm. but so is Joyce I mean and I actually think that that's usually wrong like most yeah. books that most books that we read as like um, new beginnings in in literature are actually ter- uh, a termini they 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 end something um, and they're very hard for to replicate. Yeah, and, and you know, thank God people don't kind of. What are other termini in literature? I'm interested in this question. Now. <laughs> now that you've asked me, I'm not going to be able to think of any good examples. I but I mean, I mean, I usually point to like Ulysses or like James Joyce as like the term, like the terminus. Um, you know, I sort like I mean, I think a common feeling among I mean, probably this is always it is this has been a perpetual feeling, but you know, since like modernism you know, as a writer, it feels sort of impossible to go on. Although clearly, like, you know, we, that wasn't the case, but I do, I do think Kanazgard, like there is, he, he kind of sends like an answer to perhaps how to, how to continue um, the literary project, especially right, in an age, right. that, especially in an age that, and I will think about Termini um, more, but especially That's in your an age assignment that, for next time. Yeah, I, li- I like assignment. This kind of like, you know, ultimate what uh, torpidity or or uh, obs- not obsolescence, but just decay of like every literary trope and every you know literary convention. I think he gives us a kind of answer to how you you as a writer could, you know, sort of both embrace. Uh, those conventions while also freeing yourself from them. Um, I mean, I don't, I, I don't, I mean, another interesting question with Knozgaard that I, th- I think is a matter of a debate is like, is he like an everyman or is he an, an underground man? Cause I think both can't like both camps claim him. I mean, or, I mean, you can make an argument for both. Maybe he would accept himself as both. And obviously he's not a strict binary. He's definitely an everyman. He's definitely an everyman. But what I'm, uh, I think, It it um, sounds like the kind of detail he goes into, like that obsessive particularity is pushing against the idea of every man, right? I mean, every man is going to be schematic in some kind of way. I guess he does somehow take pains out of portraying himself as like any normal Norwegian kid. I played soccer. I drank beer. I mean, of course, what does separate him is that he's written six books uh on right. uh, on the subject of himself doing those things but that's the one way in which he's not a normie everything else yeah. is i mean and we could argue that like it just happens you know it happens sometimes you write a six book autobiographical yeah. <laughs> novel um but you know i think kanazgo does like his work is representative of our you know ages like sort of impatience um, with, or just rejection of, like, every literary convention or trope, or just, or simply, like, illusion, let's just, like, let's just, let's just say illusion, like, um, you know, so many books just feel like these tired time war, you know, they're, like, dead on arrival, um, they're, like, but I don't know where I was going with that, also, you know, just, like, so many, you know, it, it, it's hard if you're, especially if you're a writer, it's always probably been this way, as I said, but, you know, to simply you write a book um, with, the, with the old standbys of like, you know, plot, character, dialogue, whatever. 
I mean, this isn't a novel statement that I'm making now, but it seems it seems like an almost ridiculous project. And uh, certainly, I have you know great kind of like an envy for a writer like Kanazgard who seems to have who seems to have like discovered something new. So I guess I will use the word new there, or at least he's found a, a way out of that, uh, out of this trap of like illusions that kind of are simply these like dead replications at this point. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually enjoy genre fiction right. because there's, at least for me, there's a pleasure in seeing, yeah. you know, the kind of the notes being hit. Right. Sure, yeah, sure. same, uh, yeah. same. Because well, there's an innovation on that level. Like it's never going to be the biggest innovation, but you can still have yeah, innovation I mean, within the genre. Yeah, and it's, I mean, they're, they're different things, right? But the, yeah. the the stuff that tends to get valorized is allegedly non-genre. And, you know, right. you talk about like the, the quote unquote serious American writers like, you know, John Updike. Well, that's, yeah. as far as I'm concerned, that is in fact genre. But, oh, no, 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 yeah. no. I would, I would totally agree with that. I'm yeah. like really interested in this idea. Like, no, of course, like, so I want to write a Jean Updike genre novel. I want to write a novel now about <laughs> oh, no, it, a guy who uh, cheats on his wife in the 1950s and oh, do an let, update let, on that genre. <laughs> uh, um, Jonathan Franzen, I'd say, is like the, our foremost exponent of the Jean yeah. Updike genre. You think no, he writes no, in yeah. John Updike genre? In that he's boring as shit and I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> I've never read him. Shots fired. No, I, I would definitely agree that like, I mean, I, it's sort of no one knows what to call it really, but yeah, so-called literary fiction or whatever is absolutely, uh, or realism, we could just say off. Yeah. I think realism is a bit more of a complicated term, um, so it's not exactly what I want to use, is no less a genre than the detec a detective story. Or and that's why detective like stories that. are better, because they know they're a genre. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, innovation yeah. on the, you know, detective I don't always, stories, I don't, science fiction. I wish I, yeah, I don't necessarily feel that um, as a reader. Amish romance. There's a lot of innovation um, in Amish romance right now. What? Amish romance. That's like a big, that's a genre. Are you serious? Off right now. Yeah, that's a specific genre. Because I've been trying to become a genre novelist. So I was looking into what genres are hot right now. It's, it's actually Amish vampire romance. Right. I'm sorry. Yeah, Amish vampire. Yeah. Are you fucking with me right now? Or is this... No, oh, no, it's, it's really totally a thing. Real, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If you're if you're in Philly next weekend, give me a shout. I'll take you to the farmer's market. All the All the kids are reading it. Okay. Yeah, it's a far with the farmers market. That's is it? Or, or, um, you know, is it? Um, yeah, I don't know the difference. Yeah, uh, mostly mostly coming in from Lancaster County, a bunch of kids reading their their teen Amish vampire romances in their straw hats. <laughs> As I'm telling you, that's where the literary innovation is happening now. It's canal scored and Amish vampire romance. Because who else reads? Exactly. Right. Talk about exactly. dense material realities. You know, you gotta be on. You gotta be honest. Yeah, they're the ones who still have that. objects. They're the ones right. who still have good objects, hefty objects. This is coming full circle. I was startled to see like Amish people in carriages on upon my entry into um, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I mean, shit. You used to see the kids on rollerblades, like going behind yeah. buggies, um, and you still will if you go to Lancaster County. Uh, I mean a lot of them have got like power tools in their barns right. or, or in their workshops, but. Um, Are those illicit in Amish culture? No, no, you can. I, I mean, I, I think there's like a, a, a range of opinions on permissibility, yeah. but I think it's like living is simple, but right. you know, if you're working, like whatever helps you get the work done. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. So they um, might, they're not necessarily anti-power tool. 
That's my understanding, at least. Otherwise, because that's my one. Uh, I mean, like the farmers market, they they will totally come in in trucks. It's not right. Like, no, they're yeah. not riding buggies in from from Lancaster. Interesting. So I, I have could, to go kind of yeah. soon, but I want to leave on the question: uh, Should we bring back sumptuary regulations? And if so, specifically, <laughs> which ones should we bring back? Um, sumptuary regulations, no except uh, there should definitely be a limit on the number of claws on the dragon's hand. Which should be what number? Uh, five permissible, four not. Okay. As far as I'm concerned. I if think podcasters should have to wear a uniform to identify them as podcasters. Oh, shit. I, are you not wretched enough already? <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't identify. Talk, about- Talk about identity politics. I don't identify as a podcaster yet. Yeah, no, hang on to that, I'd say. Did we lose Lauren? I don't know. (laughs) She looks somewhat frozen. (laughs) Oh, no. She looks sickened. Yeah, now's the time to talk shit about her because she can't say anything. <laughs> this frozen image of Lauren is quite disturbing. <laughs> it, is, it is great, actually. Yeah, really it's like about the word wretched. Like, <laughs> she looks like she's like taken suddenly ill and is about to right. yeah, vomit just, or faint or something. Or, or just like has, you know, felled by a microstroke. <laughs>